The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the world of the unusual, the bizarre, and occasionally the macabre. This is Beyond Reality Radio. Good evening, everyone. J.V. Johnson has the night off. You've probably figured that out by now. My name is Bruce Markison. Glad to be with you. I'll be filling in on tonight's show, also tomorrow night as well. And we're going to tell you what's coming up over the next several nights on Beyond Reality Radio. Tonight, we are going to focus in on a bit of history. Uh, July 16th, marking the 20th anniversary of really one of the tragic episodes in recent American history, the mysterious mysterious death of John F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, in a plane crash 20 years ago, July 16th, 1999. And we're going to talk about this and perhaps give you some insight that's a little bit different from what you've heard through the media, through popular culture up until now. John Kerner is our guest And he is going to offer his theories about the death of JFK Jr. and how they differ from what you've been told by the mainstream media. So that's going to be coming up over the next uh, two hours. But a few things we'd like to cover as we get this program started on a late night Tuesday. You can follow our program at our website. It's a good one, uh, beyondrealityradio.com. Again, that's beyondrealityradio.com. Uh, You can uh, listen in, learn about upcoming guests, lots of other good stuff at the website. Uh, We also have a chat room. If you go to J.V. Johnson on YouTube, you can participate in our live chat. We love for you to do that during the course of our two-hour program. It's a great way to uh, get involved and also listen at the same time. You can follow us on Facebook at Beyond Reality Radio. Again, that's at Beyond Reality Radio on Facebook. In addition, we're on Snapchat and Instagram. And we will take your calls a little bit later on in the program. We'll do that during the second hour. We have a toll-free listener line. It is 844-687-7669. Again, that toll-free number is 844-687-7669. Uh, By the way, if you'd like to follow me on Facebook, you can do that as well. I have a a page that's been going for about six, seven months now, about half a year, and we're developing a bit of a following on Facebook. It's uh, at Ghostly Gallery. So just punch in at Ghostly Gallery, and that'll take you to my Facebook page, Bruce Markison's Ghostly Gallery. You can um, learn about upcoming shows that I'll be hosting. You can also learn about the world of horror, the world of sci-fi. We get into ghosts, paranormal, uh, horror in popular culture, not just in movies, but also in books, magazines, comic books. Uh, We try to cover it all, and it's a fun page. We hope that uh, you'll visit at Ghostly Gallery. And if you like what you see there, we ask you to like the page as we build our audience on Facebook. Also, let's tell you about what's coming up over the next couple of nights on this very program. Tomorrow night, my guest will be Dell Bigtree, investigative journalist and CEO of Informed Consent Action Network. He'll be discussing his work around vaccines 
and Pharmaceutical Tyranny. This uh, promises to be somewhat of a controversial show. So Dell Bigtree will tackle the world of big pharmacy, talk about vaccines, his opinions of them. As coming up on the Wednesday night program. On Thursday night, our guest is T.C. Randall. He is an independent health researcher and author of Forbidden Healing, which presents his approach to health and disease at the electron level. Very interesting. And then uh, next week, another live show Monday night, JV's guest will be Linda Godfrey. She is the author of the new book, I Know What I Saw, which investigates encounters with monsters from ancient mythology, folklore, and contemporary urban legend. Sounds like a very interesting show. That's coming up Monday night. Uh, JV will be back by then talking about monsters from mythology with Linda Godfrey. So that's a preview of what's coming up over the next several nights right here on Beyond Reality Radio. But we're going to get things started on this, a late night Tuesday with tonight's guest. His name is John Kerner. 20 years later, he is going to discuss the mysterious death of JFK Jr. Uh, John is a professor of social sciences, an author, and an historian. And he will give us his theories about what really happened to JFK uh, that awful night uh, back July 16th, 1999. We're just getting started. It's a late night Tuesday, and you're listening to Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a shark. Shark and save. And over the next two hours, we will focus in on an American tragedy. JFK Jr., his death 20 years ago was July 16th, 1999. To talk about this in depth and to give us probably a very different perspective from what you have heard through mainstream popular culture and mainstream media is our guest, John Kerner. Uh, John is a professor of social sciences, author and historian. Uh, he has a website, paranormalwalks.com. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. He has written a number of books, including Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. Uh, John has been a professor of social sciences for 11 years at Erie Community College in New York State. Uh, the book that he wrote about the JFK Jr. Assassination, as he calls it, is one of eight books on the paranormal world, really focusing on two areas, conspiracy theories and religious mysteries. So we will get in depth on this topic tonight. Joining us on Beyond Reality Radio is John Kerner. John, welcome to the program. How are you tonight? I'm great, Bruce. How are you doing tonight? Very good. Glad to have a chance to talk about this uh, subject. JFK Jr. has always fascinated me. Let me go in this uh, very naively. It's always been my understanding that this was uh, you know, a terrible plane crash, that uh, JFK Jr. perhaps uh, didn't take all the precautions that he should have in piloting his own private plane, resulted in his death, the death of his wife, Carolyn, 
also her sister, Lauren Bissett. Uh, but you obviously feel there's a lot more to the story than that. You use the word assassination. Uh, where does your theory initially come from? I think it comes from the late, great Jim Mars. He was the first one to talk a lot about this in public. Never published on this, but never got a chance to. But he spoke a lot about this because his background was in aircraft from reporting for the Dallas Morning News. And that's kind of how he, you know, he cut his teeth as a young cub reporter. And he looked at the basic pattern for aircrafts, air crashes, I should say. And they always would typically be a very small debris field, like an accordion, for example, where the plane would be maybe like, you know, one or two city blocks. That'd be about it. There was a crash that happened up here in New Buffalo on February 12, 2009 in Clarence. And they closed off just about two streets. That was about it. But what piqued his interest with this one, and my interest too, is with this crash, there was a 17 nautical mile debris field. And it didn't make any sense to him because there would only be perhaps one or two miles if it was just an accident. The bodies in the plane just in one place. But that was not the case with this. They were finding luggage, sneakers, airplane parts on the land. And that seemed like to him and to me that the cabinet had been breached by an explosion. And in fact, I look at this in the book, there were witnesses on the ground that did see a flash of light and also heard an explosion. So that's kind of how my interest got started with the, with this case, with, the, with Jim Mars's look into the, into the issue of the, the, the debris field. So this leads you to believe that there was someone who tampered with this uh, before takeoff and that this was something that John F. Kennedy Jr. could not control. Right. So let's look at the official version of events. The official version of events is he was suffering from something called uh, with, uh, special disorientation. Specialist orientation is when you can't see what's in front of you, what's up, what's down. You're disoriented for some reason. could be like the weather. If you're driving the blizzard, that could cause it too, for example. But in the air, it could be conditions like fog, rain, that sort of thing. Now, we do know a couple different things from my research that point to that not being the case. One thing is that Edward Meyer from the FAA he studied the, the weather conditions that night, and his conclusion in his report that he issued was the weather was fine. There was nothing that could have caused disorientation. Even people on the ground were fishing. They were enjoying a nice summer evening, and there was no rain. It was a nice, clear evening. The other thing I can mention, too, this is a very key point. At 9.39 p.m., this is one hour into the flight, JFK Jr. calls into air traffic control at Martha's Vineyard, and he tells the air traffic controller, he's two minutes out from the airstrip, he's going to land the aircraft. Now, if he was in distress, or the plane was in distress, he would have said something right then, but he did not. Mm. So we know one hour into the flight, everything was fine. But one minute later, there was this explosion, and he's dropping straight to the earth, and we hear this from witnesses on the ground. They see the same thing. So I'm making the point that if he was in distress, there was no distress call, and there was no bad weather conditions. So I'm just looking at this from the standpoint of logic and evidence, like with Jim Mars. There are questions we have to raise about this. So his communications, there was an initial communication and then no follow-up? Right, because after that, he drops off a of radar, because that's the point where the plane explodes, according to okay. those that are witnessing this on the ground. 
So he, he picks that point, by the way, to call in because he took off at 8.39 p.m. So it's one hour into the flight, exactly. So this one-hour point, this one-hour marker, he's chucking in to say that everything's fine. He's going to land the aircraft that Martha's been here to take. He's going to drop off his sister-in-law. That's why he's doing this. We're in the set. That's why he's going to drop her off. That's the point of the, uh, the landing there. And they head back up from there to, to the party for Corey Kennedy's wedding. But the point I'm making, though, is if he was in distress or the plane was in distress, that was the time to say it, and he did not. No indication at all. No, and, and even if there was, he knew how to use autopilot, too. He had that training. And give me an example of this. April twenty second, 1998, he passed a training that was with a hood on. He passed that in the dark. He also took the same flight 17 times with that, that same path from New Jersey to the vineyard 17 times and five times at night. So he knew what he was doing. He was a trained he was a trained pilot. This is nothing new to him. So all these different facts may indicate that this was not in any way his fault. Let me play devil's advocate here. And I, and I do this from somewhat of a standpoint of ignorance because I don't fly very often. I have a fear of flying. I know very <laughs> little about piloting a plane. The idea of getting behind uh, the wheel, if you will, of a of an airplane and trying to pilot uh, is just uh, terrifying to me. But isn't it possible? You mentioned that you know there was that the the possibility of an explosion. Isn't it possible though that something else could have gone wrong very quickly? Can't things happen so fast in the air that even in the span of a minute you go from seemingly a very safe, uneventful flight? to all of a sudden having a great deal of difficulty, turbulence, whatever. Isn't it possible that there was something other than an explosion that changed the fate of this very quickly? Well, all I'm saying is that the official version of events says he crashed this from spatial disorientation. He was disoriented for some reason. And that's not the case. Yeah, He would have said so at 9.39 p.m., and then he, and then after that, there is this explosion. And again, we see witnesses on the ground seeing an explosion, hearing this. And one more point we can make too that's very mysterious is what happens next. There is a distinct effort to cover up the evidence because mm-hmm. at this point it gets very weird about what happens after that. Because at two fifteen a.m., ABC News reports that the Navy has picked up. Pepper Saratoga's rescue beacon. Now, this makes sense because then the FAA knew where he dropped off a of radar. It's 100 feet of water off of Martha's Vineyard. It's not going to take long to find him, maybe just a few hours. So it makes sense that they would find him that quickly. But then the Navy makes this strange, weird claim. They say, oh, hang on a second, we're wrong. It's not the Piper Saratoga. It's a downed naval military aircraft instead. It's not his. A different aircraft crash in the same spot. Now we need to think about that for a second. That is an amazing coincidence. Mm. So it brings up all kinds of questions to think about. So if if that's the case, if there is a naval aircraft in the water there, where is the where is the pilot for that craft? What mission was it on in private airspace? Did the pilot die? Where's the wreckage for that? Did it crash in a JFK's plane? All these questions must be asked. Also, it's very strange because the rescue beacon for the Saratoga 
naval aircraft are completely different. The Saratoga's rescue beacon would have been like a high-pitched uh, shrill sound, and a naval aircraft would have been like a foghorn. So you really can't confuse them. So the logic would dictate here that there is no down naval military aircraft in the waters there. You would have to cover that up. Where is the body? Where is the wreckage for that? So instead, this was put out there as a cover story to buy themselves some more time to make this look like an accident. Hmm. So that one moment there when they make up this lie about this supposed other crash, it gives us a sense to see there's more going on here than what's really been, been said. John, take us back uh, to that night, July 16th, 1999. Uh, do you remember where you were when you heard the news about the plane that had gone missing and what your initial reaction was? I initially had a lot of questions about it. I've kind of been born to be skeptical about these things. I mean, at that point in time, I mean, I was in you know, my early 20s, so it was a time where I was just kind of getting out of college and wondering about uh, my path in, in, in the world. But it certainly was a, a shocking event to me. I mean, here was this man who had everything ahead of him. I mean, he had a beautiful young wife. Uh, he had a successful George magazine. And I think like many of us, it just seemed so unfair that he was taken away. Another, another tragedy for the Kennedy family. And I can just take us back to that night. It was supposed to be a very wonderful weekend for the family. So that weekend, July 16th, Ray Kennedy was getting married. And that's Bobby Kennedy's youngest daughter. And July 16th is also a special day for the family because this is the Apollo landing, uh, the day they launched for the Apollo 11 program, July 16th, headed to the moon. So every year, the Kennedy family celebrates a major accomplishment for the JFK administration. So it was going to be a, a very wonderful weekend. JFK Jr. was, was going to announce his plans to run the Senate. He was going to be... He was going to sell George magazine. So this was a time he was, it was a time of celebration for the family. And then, of course, tra you know, tragedy struck. So there was no question that he was going to run for political office? That's not just speculation? No, he had made this pretty clear. He told his business partner, Gary Ginsburg, this was the path forward for him. He discussed this with his family. It was time to sell the magazine, go into politics, he felt that the Senate would be a good path for him because it was the family legacy. His uncle had been a senator. His dad was, of course, a senator. And that would be a nice continuation of the family legacy. Also, Carolyn wanted to stay in New York City, raise a family there. So this would be a good fit for him, running for Senate. And, again, this was on his mind. He also had been obsessed, we should mention, with proving the, the truth of his father's assassination. And he had always felt there was more to that story, too. Hmm. Even, even as a young man, uh, his, one of his first girlfriends, uh, Meg Azioni, wrote a book about this in their high school years. That is when he kind of just started to question things, that there was more to the story. He even published an article in George, written by Oliver Stone, here before the, the tragedy uh, of his, uh, you know, the JFK Jr.'s plane crash, talking about the theories behind his father's assassination. So that was on his mind, too. And all these different things were the path forward for him, that, you know, that, that summer evening on July 16th, 1999. Interesting what you said a moment ago. Your suspicions were peaked right away. This was not something that happened a few days later, a few weeks, years later. Right away, you had your doubts. Well, I, I think if you look at the pattern here, 
from, from my research and the research of any other people, the Kennedy family has been targeted by conspiracies, and it's not even that hard to prove. Just look at Bobby Kennedy, for example. Sirhan Sirhan admitted to his lawyer, William Pepper, that he was brainwashed by the agency, the CIA, mm. to kill Robert Kennedy. And this has not been reported too much. This is a major thing we should mention here. RFK Jr., Bobby Kennedy's son, visited Sirhan Sirhan in his California jail last year and concluded that the agency killed his father and made this, admitted this to uh, the, the media when he came out of the jail. So the Kennedy family even knows that their agency has targeted them including Bobby Kennedy. So it seems to me that this is the type of thing that needs to, there needs to be questions to be raised about this. And it was on the mind of JFK Jr. He felt that this needed to be exposed to who was behind his father's assassination. John, let's get into the background of JFK Jr.'s flying history. You mentioned that he had done this route a number of times before. Uh, can we assess in general how good a pilot was he? Was he was he good, mediocre, less than that? Can can we assess that? Right. Two flight instructors, I think, are instructive here: Ralph Howard and Harold Anderson. They both testified after JFK if this happened that he was a meticulous pilot. He loved flying because it gave him a sense of peace. Kind of like his father's uh, obsession with sailing. This was this was for JFK Jr. His way to get removed from from the stress of his public life. Go in the sky, relax, be up there, have fun. Took his wife up there, and she said, "This is wonderful. I still we, we love this so much. It's so relaxing up here, so peaceful." He'd been flying since 1983. Long history of flight, many years. He knew what he was doing. He was very careful, very meticulous. And I mentioned before that he passed his testing. With flying colors, one example I mentioned before, April 22nd, 98, he passed with a hood on in the dark. So he knew what he was doing. He took this same plate 17 times, five times at night. So we know for a fact that he, he could use autopilots if he was disoriented. So, and we knew he called in an hour into the flight with no problems with him or the aircraft. So he was a good pilot. He had no tendency toward being reckless, taking chances, that sort of thing? Just the opposite, in fact. He was, in every sense of the word, careful with everything. He checked everything, made sure everything was okay, never took any risks, especially with his family. So both flight instructors made this very clear after this tragedy, that whatever happened here, it could not have been his fault because of how skilled a pilot that he was. I remember when this happened, there was talk about whether he submitted a flight plan or not. Can you clarify that? He did submit a flight plan, but he was, again, the flight plan was going from Caulfield Airstrip to New Jersey, Mother's Vineyard. And we can take a look at another part of this case that we can mention, too, that at this point in, in the chronology, there is this discussion of whether there was a flight instructor there with him. Was someone offering there to go with him on the flight? And it's interesting that in the NTSB report, they say that someone offers to fly with him, but he decides not to take this person up on his offer and does not go with him. Now, strangely, this person is not given a name in the NTSB report. And you look at other reporting on the matter in the New York Times, Washington Post, you never get the person's name. And you'd think that this would be a great story, who this person was. They cheated death. 
but they never came forward with who this person allegedly was. Is this a made-up story, make him look like he was reckless? I think that's mm-hmm. what we're, we're. I think that's what we're seeing here. This guy never even existed. He didn't even need a flight instructor. He knew what he was doing. He was a good pilot. He didn't even need one to go with him. Now, you said he did submit a flight plan? Right. Again, the flight plan was from the Caulfield Aerostrip in New Jersey. It took off at 8.39 p.m., and the, the destination was Martha's Vineyard to drop off Roaring Bissette. And then he was confirming that when he called into air traffic control at 9.39 p.m. to drop her off, about two minutes from the airstrip. Now, in trying to execute this kind of a flight, is a flight plan mandatory or simply suggested? It's just suggested. It's mandatory for commercial aircraft. We're not we're not civilian, but he he knew how to how to do this based on his training. So this was he kept a logbook too of everything every flight that he did. So he was very meticulous. Really, and the book goes back to eighty three. Goes all the way back to nineteen eighty three. So it's very meticulous. Everything he did, every every flight that he took, every place he went, who was on the plane how long the plane was, and so he, he had this all the way back to 1983. Yeah. So he's obviously very serious about this. Absolutely, and he would never fly if there was any risk. And we can mention his ankle, too. This kind of plays in Newton as well. So May 30th, he has a crash with a paragliding accident on Memorial Day, and he fractures his ankle very slightly. Mm. The cast is removed on... Thursday morning, July 15th. Goes to the doctor, cast is removed, ankles healed. So he goes all throughout Thursday the 15th, all throughout New York City, walks around, gets a workout in, goes to the Yankees game. And then the following morning, Friday, everything's still fine, ankles feeling good. He goes to the convenience store across from the airstrip, gets an uh, energy drink, gets a, um, uh, like a granola bar, goes up to the counter there to purchase the drink and the snack, and the clerk there asks him, how's the ankle feeling? And he says, it's feeling great. So according to him walking around for two days, according to the clerk's testimony, he wasn't even limping, the ankle was feeling great. And we also know that, again, he took off without any incidents. He calls in and says everything's fine. So the ankle was not bothering him. He was doing everything he could to make sure this flight was going to be successful. Now, if there had been something lingering with the ankle, is the ankle, is the foot, is that critical to a pilot? I mean, how much do your feet get involved in the actual process? Well, there are the pedals to maintain the balance of the aircraft. But again, he handled that without any incident on the takeoff. Took off clean, easy, it was good. And if anything could happen with the ankle, he could use autopilot. Right, And we also know that the main point we keep making here is if he was having distress, anything in his body or in the aircraft, he would have said so at 9.39 p.m. and he did not. So, And also because just thinking about going through those two days, getting, getting in a workout, walking around for two days, testing the ankle, telling the clerk it feels great, no limp. It was only a slight fracture. He had all over a month and a half to make blood heal. So it, it, the ankle was feeling fine. Yeah. Any other physical problems that he might have had? No, I mean, from everyone's testimony, he spent the day just relaxing, working out, you know, just kind of doing some things in George Magazine, wrapping some things up there, getting in, getting lug- lug- luggage packed for the, for the, you know, for the weekend, picking up his wife. It was just kind of a busy day just to, 
get to the airstrip and get over to the, this beautiful weekend they had planned for the family. And there's never been any evidence to suggest that he had been drinking. That That's never come up, right? No, he's not ever known to be a drinker. In fact, a couple things about his wife. He wanted to set an example. He wanted to be faithful to his wife. He wanted to be a, a good example to everyone. Not not drinking, smoking, no, no, you know, adultery. He wanted to be everything that his dad was not, in a way. To, to, to be this paragon of virtue to the world, to show what being a good man can be, live a life about politics, give yeah. to charities anonymously. So he was a great, intelligent man, and I think that's kind of why we should remember him, because he just had this charisma about him that we can all emulate and kind of respect nowadays. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about John F. Kennedy Jr. Um, he's somebody that in a way trans- transcended political lines, political affiliations and loyalties, uh, people seem to like him, whether they were Democrats or Republicans. Uh, those divisions, they weren't as prominent with him as they were with other members of his family. It's very true, and it, I think that's what's missing today, frankly, in our politics. It's so polarized that a man like him could have been what we needed for the, this century's politics. He could have been a great president that everyone would have loved. It would have been a time, I think, of healing for our country to have him as president. And it would have been a time to kind of recover from the assassination of the 60s. And I think, yeah. as you said, Democrats and Republicans would have loved him so much. And they, they did when he was alive. He kind of had that charisma about him to say about politics and just be a man everyone could respect, and he respected them. And, of course, this begs the question as to why anybody would want to assassinate him, would want to do him in. Uh, with uh, some degree of foul play, and we will get into that. Some of your uh, theories, uh, your reasoning, we'll do that in the second hour. Uh, We do continue uh, hour number one of Beyond Reality Radio on a late-night Tuesday, if you're just tuning in. Our guest is John Kerner, uh, John, a professor of social sciences at Erie Community College. Uh, He has written uh, eight books on the paranormal world, focusing on areas like conspiracy uh, theories and religious mysteries. Uh, And he has a book uh, related specifically to the topic at hand, this 20th anniversary of the death of JFK Jr. The book is called Exploding the Truth, uh, the JFK Jr. Assassination. Now, John, your day job, you're a professor of social sciences at Erie Community College, uh, Williamsville, New York. So how does somebody who is a professor at a college um, get involved in conspiracy theories, religious mysteries, this sort of thing? How does that come about? Well, I think what fascinates my students the most are these areas of history that are more of the unexplained side, where we can question things that are not in you know, the official textbooks. And I think that's what keeps people interested, that we can look at what I'm looking at here you know, it's based off of, you know, facts and evidence, so we can question some things that we're being told are the truth, but in fact, they just a little bit deeper, and these are, in fact, uh, real conspiracies that people with vested interests wanted to accomplish for specific reasons, and they, and they got these people dead for very specific reasons. Yeah, so you delve into these theories in your classes. Oh, yeah, I and mean, we have... Um, a good discussion about them. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a back and forth, too. I mean, we, yeah. we talk about the various theories, because there are different theories about, you know, who would be behind this assassination or the JFK assassination or even other 
different the McKinley assassination. I wrote a book about that one. So you know, there are lots of different things I've, I've taken a look at where you can go back and forth and have an academic discussion that I think is enlightening for everyone that's involved. Over the years, what kind of reaction have you gotten from the administration? I, I've been embraced. I mean, people. Um, I've been, we have a paranormal club at ECC. Okay. I've invited to talk there. So I mean, we've kind of embraced the paranormal. We have a faculty advisor there that's invited me to speak. So we, we look at the paranormal world as as a part of the world that needs to be in, in, investigated more, embraced yeah. more. And, and I think you probably would appreciate that as time goes on, it is getting more accepted into the mainstream. Did you start the paranormal club there? No, one of my, one of my former students did, ironically enough. So he was really? kind of inspired by... By my, my work, and uh, he felt that might be a good way to continue the work, and the faculty approved it. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's got a pretty decent following. I mean, people, uh, you know, at the at the at the college, you know, they they like this. And I think as time goes on, in the world in general, we'll have more people kind of turn to the paranormal as as an interesting area to kind of delve into. And in general, in general, your students, they are pretty uh, supportive or skeptical of some of your ideas? I think what gets them is my approach is all fact-based and evidentiary-based. So like we went through tonight, I mean, I'm looking at the evidence from the case here. Yeah. Official version says it's disorientation. That's the, weather, the weather says differently. Reports are not disorientation. He was, was he a bad pilot? No, he was a good pilot. Navy lied about this. I mean, there there are real evidentiary facts here that we can point to that this, this is not an accident. Witnesses included. Yeah. So if you if you put these out in front of the students, they're going to say, "Yeah, this this makes sense." John, I'm curious about what John F. Kennedy Jr. thought about his father's death uh, happening in 1963. Uh, John Jr. had not even turned three years of age, so. Uh, this was obviously something he could not process, but as he grew older, he developed some very, uh, I guess, very specific thoughts on the assassination of his father. What were his views on it? He felt that the CIA killed his father, to put it very simply, that he had reached that conclusion based off his own research and research of investigators that he had hired, and he was determined to expose this if and when he became president. He also published an article in, in George Magazine, written by Oliver Stone, one year before the tragedy that talked about this very theory, which, of course, is in the movie JFK. And this was an obsession with him. This began in his high school years. I mentioned this with his first girlfriend's Meg Azioni, uh, in a book she wrote about her relationship with him. She talked about how obsessed he was with learning the details of the Warren Commission uh, he felt that it was a complete lie, that there were powerful forces that, that killed his father, that included the CIA. So I believe this made him a target, and that made him his, his uncle a target, too, because hmm. Bobby Kennedy was going to expose the truth, too. And Sirhan Sirhan was brainwashed by the agency by his own admission to kill his uncle, too. Do you know if his theories were shared by his mother? Did she agree with him? That I'm, I'm not sure. She, she did. It seems like once his mother died, it seems like at that point in time he was able to kind of free himself from, from, from being involved, not being involved in politics, 
being involved in anything he wanted to do. After her death, it kind of freed him to be his own man, I guess. Yeah. And he, he could do whatever he wanted after that. He could go into politics, research and assassination, and that could be his, you know, his path forward. So he may have been reluctant because he didn't want to stir up old wounds and, and you know, maybe hurt his mother. Yeah, I think after yeah. that happened, he kind of was able to grow up. And in his late 30s, it was getting to the point where it was like he was almost running out of time if he was going to get involved in politics. Uh, his his father got involved in politics, you know, in his 20s, so late 20s. So he was a bit behind the, the schedule here if he was going to get going. So it was time to get moving with his career. And it, and the thing we can point to is the fact he was going to sell George Magazine. That, that shows us right there the selling of the magazine, that he's going to get involved in politics. That's the step forward. That's where he's going to go next. How successful was that magazine? For its time, it was pretty successful. They had some years in the black, uh, some years in the red. But the point, I don't think, was to make money for him. It was just to do something new, something creative, in like this apolitical way, have a fun look at politics, and look at things like conspiracies. He did an article on... Uh, as I mentioned, the JFK assassination, the Israeli assassination. So he was trying to do things in his own way, be his own man. He'd been a lawyer for a while, had five successful cases. So this was a platform for him to show the world his creativity, I think. I wonder if he had any fears of his own life. If he thought, you know, if I get into politics, am I going to put myself within the target? Am I going to put myself in a situation like my father had been? Do you know if that was something he ever talked about? I think that once uh, Caroline was on board with this, uh, once he made it clear to her that they would not have to move out of New York City, that his mother was also had passed away, the Senate run would be appropriate for them, they could have to move to Albany, that this could work for them as a family. And I think... He felt that this was his, his responsibility, I guess you could say, that he needed to kind of carry the torch forward for the family. Yeah. And Bobby Kennedy had the same approach. I mean, he, he told uh, his mother before he announced the presidency that he was going to run. You know, this is March of 68. And he said, Mom, you know, I'm, I'm going to run for president. And she just she slumped in her chair because she knew he he was going to die pretty soon, mm. and there was so it was going to probably kill him. But he said it's going to be okay, man. It's going to be okay. But yeah. um, it seems like with uh, the family, they feel like it's important to do what they can to serve our country, and if there's consequences, they they are willing to suffer them. John, you touched upon this briefly uh, near the beginning during hour number one, but I want to get in more depth on the crash scene. Um, yeah. And and the details of that, what that might tell us about what really happened in midair. Uh, give us, if if you will, give us the, the the full description of what that crash scene looks like uh, to investigators, to authorities. Uh, what exactly was it like there at Martha's Vineyard? It was a complete, complete chaotic mess. I mean, you had seventeen nautical miles of debris. Mm. And not just on the water, but on the land. They were finding things on the land. Lauren Bissett's luggage was on the land. Her clothing, everything she packed up was ripped open. They could see all the things she packed. There were sneakers, airplane parts. 
as if the cabinet had been breached, had exploded. And just getting back to a more weird thing about this, right there in Martha's Vineyard, actually pretty close, is a place called Woods Hole. And they have a place there called the Oceanic Recovery Institute. They never were asked to do recovery. And got contacted by a naval recovery doctor that worked in Pearl Harbor. And he did some research on this, too. And he found out through his own research, and I backed this up, too, they never were involved in this. They could have been asked to do recovery. They were right there in the crash scene. They did investigations for the state, for the federal government, but never were asked to be involved. Those people there would have been loyal to the Kennedy family, probably. Instead, who comes in? The CIA and the Navy. And they make this lie that we talked about before about this downed aircraft that makes completely no sense. And again, look about the cover-up here. If you can see who covers things up, that tells you who's involved in the conspiracy. Think about JFK's assassination. Think about how they altered the, the autopsy photographs, how the Hesperian film was altered the agency. So if you can do that, you can see who's involved with conspiracy. So if the Navy is saying at 2.15 a.m. that they found the Saratoga rescue beacon, which they probably did, it doesn't take that long to find it. They knew when he dropped off a radar, and then they say, oh, no, hang on a second. It's one of our own aircraft in the water. That can't make any sense. Mm. Where is the pilot for that crash? Where is, it, where, is it, where is the wreckage for that one? Why was he flying in, in private airspace? Where, where is, uh, what mission was he on? And all these different things are never asked. It just sort of just, just let go, and they say, oh, okay, well, we'll just let you slide on that one. And I mentioned this, too. The Navy can never, ever make a, a confusing... Uh, um, the rescue beacons are different for those two things, because naval aircraft beacons are like a foghorn. For the Saratoga, it will be like a, like a high-pitched shrill sound. So you can't even confuse them. So the whole scene here is just filled with questions more than answers. Yeah. John, because this happened at water, was it easier for them to control the media and keep the media away? That, that's the point that I thought about, too. Because if you have, a, um, say, this, if there's a bomb on the aircraft... You don't, you don't want it to go off over land because then you have people that could witness this more easily. It would be falling on people's houses, people's homes. They'd see it more easily. Yeah. But if it's over water, you can control the area much better. And then they sealed it off for 17 nautical miles. No one got in there. No media got in there. No members of any family got in there. No, no one. It was all sealed off. Not even local police were allowed to go in there. No one. Just the Navy, the CIA, that's it, for, for five days. And again, think about this. All of Saturday goes by, all Sunday goes by, Monday goes by, Tuesday goes by, nothing. Are you kidding me? It's 100 feet of water. They knew where he dropped off a radar. They knew where he was. I mean, think about this logically. How, how can they just take five days to find three bodies, a small aircraft, when right there at Woods Hole, people are waiting to, to do recovery efforts if they could be called upon? All this makes completely no mm. sense to me. And you mentioned that they saw debris. A lot of it, I guess, was luggage of Lauren Bassett. What about personal items of John F. Kennedy Jr.? Were, did some of those things come up, too? Right. The thing that we can find here is that I got 
into this a bit more after the book came out. I was contacted by other people that, that witnessed the explosion. And they've told me that people are ready to talk about this now. They've been a bit frightened to talk about these things because, yeah, there were things that they found on the land, like his luggage, like her luggage, parts of the plane that fell on their, on their homes, you know, in places like Woods Hole. So, so this is part of the story that's not been talked about yet. And you can go back to what, what Jim Morris had said. That's the first thing to think about here, the debris field. It's not a very small area like you'd expect. It's a massive explosion. And those on the ground, that's what they saw, flash of light, heard an explosion. Uh, John, I'm curious, what has been the initial reaction and feedback to the book? It's just out since October in paperback. What are people telling you about it so far? I've got a lot of good reaction. Uh, I got a letter from the Kennedy family that... Uh, I'm a cousin that I got, I got mailed to my office at ECC that they liked the book. They'd read really? it. Uh, mentioned they got contacted by that naval diver who worked at Pearl Harbor that did some research about the you know, Oceanic Institute and, you know, it was, what's all over there. He added to the story. And I mentioned to this other witness that had come forward to from Martha's Vineyard. So it's been, I think, very positive and uh, so far so good, I guess you could say. When you're writing a, a topic like this, inevitably you're going to touch a nerve with some people. Uh, they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to consider alternative theories. Do those folks ever write you, email you? Do you get any feedback specifically from them? Not as much uh, in terms of writing. So sometimes at lectures I give, I mean, there'll be honest questions that I'll try to answer. Yeah. I mean, and and it's... And from my perspective, I, I want the questions. It helps me, you know, learn more. And I, I try to do things in my book and the way I write things based off of what I learned, evidence and research, based off of the facts. And just one more thing I can mention, too, uh, a JFK Jr.'s autopsy report. I mean, look at that, for example. Uh, just It's a public record. And you look at his, his autopsy report, it's strange because it, it shows in his midsection dots and dashes as if his body had been separated in two sections, and even across his arms mm. and legs. So even just basic things like that, you can see in, in the public record that just don't add up based off of what we're told, you know, is the official version of events. How long did it take you to do the research and the writing? I imagine this was a fairly lengthy process for you. Yeah, this one has been in the works for probably about five years. Mm. Uh, I've been tooling with it um, even just trying to track down the third witness to the to the assassination that took me alone six months, uh, and then look, I tell the story in the book about how I was able to track down the name of that witness, and it was a long, laborious process. So it, it, even just one little thing like that can take a long time. Just digging through microfilm, contacting people, using the national archives. I mean, just all kinds of things are involved just with even one little thing. So this book, all the end notes are there, so everyone can see where everything came from. It's all and academically cited in the back of the book. John, I guess uh, the crux of it is is why. Why would anybody want to assassinate somebody like John F. Kennedy Jr.? We talked earlier. This was a likable, charming personality. He was extraordinarily popular in the culture. Uh, he was somebody that was liked to cross party lines, Democrats, Republicans, people in between. 
why? Why would somebody want to assassinate him? Simply dislike for the family, fear that he was going to become too powerful. Of all the reasons, and you've hinted at some of them, but of all those reasons, what do you think is the most logical? I think the thing that put him in the cross here is, is his obsession with proving the truth of his father's assassination. I mean, in 1999, it's likely that there's still people alive that were involved in the conspiracy. So he becomes president, even senator. He could expose the truth about that assassination. Hmm. It, was, it was the assassination of his uncle, who came out called Brothers recently and talked about Bobby Kennedy obsessed with that for five years. So I think you want to take up the mantle for that, prove the conspiracy involved with the CIA. And he hinted at this in George Magazine. So he's going to take that forward in the presidency. And that, I think, made him a target, just like he was, like his uncle was a target, his father was a target, too. So I think that made him likely a victim of assassination because of that. Also, think about this. So you said he's popular, you know, he's very likable. Because of that, that fact, if he runs for anything, he's going to win. So he can pick his path forward. So he wants to be governor, he wins. He wants to be senator, he's going to win. President, he's going to win. So anyone that's in his way, they're going to lose. Mm. So if you have anyone that's powerful, like that, that's thinking about running for anything, if he's going to put his hat in there, it's lights out because he's got that kind of popularity. So JFK Jr., if he's going to go forward with any of these paths forward, it's going to it's going to make him a target. And because how he lived his life, I mean, he's got his position forward for the presidency and for anything he wants. Tommy is interesting here, too, because let's say you got to play this out forward here. If he runs for senator of New York, gets elected in 2000, and spends a few years in the Senate, and runs for president, say, in 2004, then on Election Day that year, he would have been 43 years old, the same, year, same age his father was in 1961 when he became president, the same mm-hmm. age, 43 years old. So that path would be the same as his father would be taking. I think that was on his mind that year. Your hunch is that he would have tried to go all the way to the top, that he wanted to be president, that was something he was passionate about? It seems like from discussions with his family that the Senate was what he was interested in doing. That fit the family legacy. Being a senator, like his uncle, like his father was. Mm-hmm. Bobby Kennedy was from New York. And the big thing is Caroline in this equation, too. They were, If they're going to have children... And it seems like she might have been pregnant when the airplane took off that tragic night. They could stay in New York and raise the family there, not Albany. Hmm. So this was more comfortable for them. They love New York City. And it seems like the weekend they're going to announce the plans for Senate, announce the pregnancy. This was a very beautiful time for them. And that could pass forward for them to the, to maybe the White House. If you, you know, We'll see if it happens. We'll see. But that was kind of the first step to take. He has to take you know, his lumps first to go through the Senate, to the process. Now, that's interesting. You mentioned that there there's a belief that she was pregnant. Again, that's just speculation. But again, from what I understood from my own research, that what made her comfortable, if they want to have a family, is him staying in New York, raising the family there, and not in Albany. Because if he runs for governor of New York, that means living, uprooting the family and himself to Albany. But they can stay in New York, be a New York State Senator, and that's better for raising a family. Yeah. That's why the path for would be. Plus, on top of the fact, his uncle was Senator from New York, his father was Senator from Massachusetts, so it's part of the legacy of the family to be in the U.S. Senate. 
John, you mentioned the timeline earlier. Uh, John F. Kennedy Sr. assassinated in 1963. So 1999, that's uh, 36 years later. And there were still people that would very much have been alive if they had been involved in 63. Some of those folks could very well have still been around in 99. Now it's 20 years later. Um, I guess the chances of some of those people still being alive are a heck of a lot less at this point in time. Do you think we're going to continue to learn about the assassination of Senior? And do you think we're also going to continue to learn more about the mysterious death of, of, of the younger Kennedy? Yeah, I think as time goes on, we are going to learn a lot more. And I did mention that I was contacted by that woman from Martha's Vineyard. And she had said that she was thankful for this book that that I had, you know, that I've written and, and it got published because she is hopeful now that more people will come forward and talk about what they saw that night. That they saw an explosion. They're they're scared to talk. And I want to mention another kind of a corollary here with RFK's assassination. That took a long time for the truth to come out about that. Just three years ago, Sir Hansen had admitted he was brainwashed by the agency, and just that that just came out just recently. A woman named Nina Rhodes Hughes came forward recently, too. Nina Rhodes Hughes was RFK's campaign worker, and she saw a second gunman that night in, on June 6, 1968, and she was scared to talk to, and she just came forward three years ago. So with RFK's assassination, that's a good example of how if you just wait long enough, in some cases it takes 50 years, you can finally get the truth. When we look at the legacy of, of JFK Jr., it has been 20 years since he died. So in a sense, a generation has been lost. A lot of young people coming up now know very little about John F. Kennedy Jr. Um, and, and, and in a way, that's obviously very sad uh, because he died so young, age 38. Do we risk completely, having already lost a generation, do we, do we risk that further erosion of his legacy. He did accomplish a lot of things in a short period of time, but it is amazing how quickly that we as a culture can forget. It is amazing. That's why I think he should be remembered, because our current politics, as everyone knows, is so polarized. And it seems like, as we talked about, this was the one man in the past maybe even 50 years that was able to rise above politics, loved by both Democrats and Republicans, lived the life of grace, eloquence, respected his family, respected his wife. He was just a very good and very decent man that should be remembered. There are so few like him that ever have lived in our country. So I think that's why he's worth remembering. That's why it's worth trying to figure out what happened when he died so it can't happen again. So I think this is the kind of person, this is the kind of man that we could all kind of emulate what politics should be about, about respecting each other, respecting other points of view. Even if you disagree with someone, you still need to respect their point of view, because this is a country that has freedom of speech, and both parties need to be respected. And, like, that's how he did it. That's how he was. He respected everyone, no matter who you were. The book is Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. It is available at Amazon.com and uh, various other uh, outlets. Uh, also, 
Um, we encourage folks to visit John's website, which is www.paranormalwalks.com. And I want to switch gears in just our final few minutes here because I'm always interested in uh, the paranormal, ghosts. I actually uh, I do ghost tours in uh, in upstate New York here. Um, it's one of many jobs I have in addition to guest hosting on this program. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the paranormal walks that you do. Are they are they are they more tours or hunts or combination of the two things? It's kind of a combination of the two. We do bring, bring equipment on the walks, and they are based in part on my own research. And I conduct them in Hamburg, Lockport, Medina, and Buffalo. And I do them every October. And they're a lot of fun. They're family-oriented. And they cover the wide range of the paranormal. So that they're, you know, they include ghost stories, strange UFO reports, strange creatures, conspiracy theories. Hmm. I mean, all the range of the, of the paranormal world we get to touch on for Western New York's history, which kind of makes it kind of unique. So that strictly just ghost stories. There are a lot of good, good ghost stories, don't get me wrong. But I, my approach is more looking at paranormal as a broad spectrum of things that we can talk about on these, these interesting walks I do every year in October. What are some of the creatures you delve into? Well, like, for example, in Lockport, there's, you know, there's a sighting of, of a mysterious sea serpent that was on the canal in 1910. In, for, in Lake Erie, there's been sightings of UFO reports diving into the water. There is lake serpents in Erie, Lake Erie. We, there's even sightings of Mothman-like creatures we talked about, too. In the North Towns, little people from the Iroquois Confederacy, giant stories from the, from the Confederacy. So legends and tales from the Iroquois are a lot of what we talk about, too, on, on the walks. Respecting your legacy, too, is important. Now, you host all of these walks, or do you have other folks help you out? I do uh, the walks in Lockport and Hamburg, and my other senior staff members handle the ones in Cobblestone District and in Medina, so kind of split. The, they're all on Friday and Saturday nights in October. Yeah, and how long do they but, typically yeah. last? Are they an hour, two hours? They're about an hour and a half. And the nice thing about them is everyone gets some free candy, and they get a wristband <laughs> to keep the bad ghosts away. Yeah, and you know the kids get to. We, every kid gets to hold some ghost meters, and we have. Lots of equipment we bring on the tour. It's just it's a nice family night to get out there and enjoy the paranormal and celebrate the history of Western New York. Yeah, and if somebody wants to go on one of these walks, they just go to the website and then they send you an email. Right, we have we're going to set up uh, this year uh, advanced tickets. So we're going to do that this year. You also can show up anytime you want at at each particular site, and just. Again, they start in October, so we're getting the season right with a lot of new sites for this year. So it's going to be kind of a fun year. This will be our ninth year we've been doing this, so it's, a, it's an exciting year for the company. Yeah. Now, I, I do tours. Not that I want to promote my tours here, but I, I'm just doing this as a compare-contrast. <laughs> right. um, I do tours through October. It can get fairly cold in late October in upstate New York, so I imagine you're dealing with some of that uh, same weather concerns that I am as you get uh, closer and closer to Halloween. Oh, yeah. As you know, uh, Western New York can weather can change in an instant. So we had a lot of rain last year. So it kind of but it does make it spookier, though, doesn't it? When you get the spooky nights when it's a little bit drizzly, a little bit cold. So it adds to the, the ambiance of the, 
of interesting spooky evening if you have that kind of weather. So you can turn lemons into lemonade, I guess you could say, with that, you know, yeah. whether you want to any plan? Weather or not, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. Any plan, John, to turn any of these paranormal walks into a book-length subject? Yeah, it would make a good book because, you know, there's so many things that have happened on the tours that, you know, just say come to the tours and you can find out what they are. Again, the uh, website is www.paranormalwalks.com uh, to find out more about those tours coming up in October, correct? That's right. Every, every Friday and Saturday. Uh, 7 o'clock each weekend in, in October until Halloween. And, of course, we've spent the last two hours talking about this 20th anniversary of the tragedy, the loss of John F. Kennedy Jr., uh, John Kerner's book, Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. The book is available at uh, Amazon.com. You can find out more about it by going to John's website. John's been very informative. Thank you for being with us these last two hours. You're welcome, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. It's been wonderful. Once again, we thank uh, John Kerner, professor of social sciences at Erie Community College, author and historian, offering his thoughts on JFK Jr. Uh, Just a reminder that we'll be back uh, tomorrow night on the Wednesday night edition of the show. Our guest will be Dell Bigtree. Dell is an investigative journalist and CEO of Informed Consent Action Network. He'll be talking about his work around vaccines. Not a big fan of vaccines, is he? And he'll also be talking about pharmaceutical tyranny. On the Thursday night program, our guest is T.C. Randall, independent health researcher and author of Forbidden Healing. He'll present his approach to health and disease at the electron level. Reminder, you can follow us at our websites, beyondrealityradio.com. You can also follow us on Snapchat, Instagram, and on Facebook. On Facebook, uh, just put in at Beyond Reality Radio. If you'd like to follow me on Facebook, just go to at Ghostly Gallery. You'll find my page, Bruce Markison's Ghostly Gallery. I have stuff about uh, the world of horror, the world of supernatural, paranormal, literature, film, promoting upcoming appearances on this program uh, lots of fun stuff. Uh, been uh, been following with a lot of interest the television show Nosferatu on AMC. So some interesting uh, stuff we've posted, I think, anyway. Um, hopefully interest to you. If you like horror, sci-fi, supernatural, uh, all that stuff, uh, we follow it at uh, Bruce Markison's Ghostly Gallery. We thank you for joining us on tonight's edition of Beyond Reality Radio. Have a good night, everyone. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.